Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 472. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Welcome to a show. Hopefully that's got no potty words in it. No naughty no naughty words, I swear from the host. Oh man, yeah, got myself a little bit excited last week. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is we're gonna play a little bit of flash fiction, and it is A Human's Life by George Nicolopoulos. Then we're gonna get into the main fiction, which is In Apprehension, How Like a God by Richard Johnson. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Just before we get into Amy, our very own Amy H. Sturgis has got a little word to say to us. Hello, my fellow Sophonauts. This is Amy H. Sturgis, and I have some happy news and an invitation to share. The happy news? A group of award-winning comics veterans has joined together to form Hocus Pocus Comics, an innovative publisher that's all about creating the future's myths and legends today. HP Comics is led by Dwight L. McPherson, whose comic Howard Lovecraft and the Undersea Kingdom is currently being adapted to film, with voice performances by Mark Hamill, Jeffrey Combs, and Christopher Plummer. I'm delighted to report that I have joined the HP Comics team as editor-in-chief. The invitation? Please visit us at hpcomics.net. Get to know us. Learn about our comics and our vision. Connect with us via social media. Throughout the month of February, we'll be running a Kickstarter for the forthcoming Houdini's Silver Dollar Misfits graphic novel. 
There are a lot of terrific rewards, and we would welcome your support. Again, please consider yourself invited to hpcomics.net, where storytelling is key. Thank you. There you go. I'll put a link on to Amy's, or the actual Kickstarter. It's right at the bottom of the page. So if you come over to the website there on today's post, there's a link on to that Kickstarter right at the bottom of the page. Now, I don't mean to, Ames, I don't mean to put it right at the bottom of the page, but you're also at the bottom of my heart. <laughs> eh? Write that one down. That's a good one. That one, if you want a partner, get yourself a partner. Use one of them, use that line. You can have that one. <laughs> now, like just a few things before we kind of get in. Like you say, last week was a bit of a passionate show at the end. You know what I mean? And it has. It's riled up everyone, man. Oh, man. It's like even our leader of the House of Parliament, John Burgo, is saying Trump's not kind of come over to the, the UK. They shouldn't have him in Parliament, should I say. And you can just see what's going on, man. But oh, it did. It fired me up. Something not right, man. It's just like... With the, the internet, you know what I mean? We're kind of all oh, a little, you know, we're all kind of pulled together now, and it just seems to be going a little bit kind of wobbly, a little bit pear-shaped, you know. And I'm not going to go in for all that, but what it has done, it honestly has solidified kind of my mind to just assure stories from around the world, you know. What I mean, that's one thing Jeremy's like keen is out to do is to kind of push these stories that just come from everywhere, do you know what I mean? Great science fiction. And it's, for me as well, I thought, when I mentioned it last week, oh, I'm going to do that, Kickstarter, I'm going to do that. Things have just kind of snowballed so quickly, and it's all coming together, do you know what I mean? And hopefully, within a week, you know, I'll try and get it up there on on Kickstarter, and hopefully, you know, we can go for gold with it. It's just like... People from all around the world have got stories, you know what I mean? And it's remarkable. I don't want to kind of make it huge and big and massive and everything like that, but I was hoping to get around about 12 writers, something like that, and just make it an e-book, you know what I mean? And we're going to call it Everyone. And like I say, we've got at the moment, you know, the, the stories coming from Mexico, from India, from Iceland, from <laughs> in Japan. We've got them all in Africa. There's two from Africa coming over. And it's just, and as well, you know what I mean? To, to read the stories are so descriptive of the lands and of the places and the times. And we just kind of, you know, narrow-minded, you know, sometimes you kind of think, you know, your own little world, your own little, you know, what you're comfort, comfortable with. But these stories just broaden your horizons. And that's what we want. Do you know what I mean? And that's the whole kind of the reason you know, to kind of, for Starship to go and to kind of bring you these stories and that. So do look out for them. I'll try and if I can remember, if I can remember, to put the cover, what we're going to use the cover in the, the kind of show notes. It might pop up in the feed. Hopefully it might. If, if it doesn't, then you'll see it hopefully next week as well. The artist is a gentleman called Kristen Ward, who's kindly let me have this cover as well. And like I say, it is just stunning. Have a look at it. If I can get, remember to put it in, in the feed. Not remember if I can, can do that, should I say. So that's what's, that's what's happening with me. Let's get into this little bit of flash fiction. A Human's Life by George Nicolopoulos. Originally published in Galaxy Edge, George Nicolopoulos is a speculative fiction writer from Athens, Greece. His short stories have been published in several magazines and anthologies worldwide, including... Galaxy's Edge, Grievous Angel, Helios Quartley and Unsung Stories. He's been a semi-finalist in the Writers of the Future contest. He is a member of the Codex Writers Group. He blogs at georgenicolopoulos.wordpress.com. 
The story is narrated by Koshnika Nashimun. Koshnika is a, man- a management consultant by day and a writer by night with a keen interest in the psychedelics and role-playing video games. And there's a link on there to his website as well. Koshnik, that's just, it's great. Narrated. Again, just submerges you in. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. A Human's Life by George Nikolopoulos, narrated by Koshik Narasimhan. So you've finally given in to your children's desperate pleas for a pet and they've persuaded you to get a human. A great choice for a pet. But there are a few things that you should know before picking one. First things first, adopt a stray. Don't buy. There are several important reasons for this. Humans are exotics, which means they are not a native species of our world or even in fact our star system. Capturing wild humans in their planet Earth has been banned for several hundred years. This makes all humans descendants of the ones that were captured centuries ago, brought to Pandasia and domesticated. Pet stores and human breeders would have you buy purebred humans and this of course leads to inbreeding. That's why humans bought in pet stores are sicklier and live less than strays. Purebred humans suffer from limited gene pools and have breed-specific health issues. Diabetes, hernia, bad back and mental illness often plague the purebreds. Commercial breeding facilities put profit above the welfare of humans. Babies are housed in appalling conditions, often becoming very sick and emotionally troubled as a result. The mothers are kept in cages to be bred over and over for years and when they are no longer profitable, they are abandoned or even killed. Most humans sold to unsuspecting customers in pet stores come from such facilities. Each year, millions of unwanted homeless humans end up at shelters across Pandasia. Shelters keep them off the streets where they are admittedly a nuisance. Males fight each other all the time and marauding human packs are really dangerous. Half of these humans will have to be euthanized for a simple reason. Too many humans and not enough good homes. And yet, the number of euthanized humans would be dramatically reduced if people adopted pets instead of buying them. We have to prevent breeders from bringing more humans into a world where there are already too many. That's why you should neuter your human. Don't listen to the soft-hearted who will tell you it's cruel. A neutered human is a happy, carefree human, delivered from its constant obsession with sex and if you own more than one, You'll be amazed at how much better they will get along after being neutered. Neutering will also prevent several undesirable sexual behaviors such as humping, aggression and the need to roam, as well as the messiness of the female cycle. Don't add new strays to the world. Humans have a litter of only one every nine months but they are in heat constantly and this makes them really hard to control. Also, mothers are obsessed with keeping their cubs and they are so persistent that you might end up with a whole human family in your hands and believe me, that's a bit more than you bargained for. Humans are not toys. They are real live animals. Owning them is both a privilege and a responsibility. They live long and as cute and adorable as the babies are, there's a tendency to abandon old ones in the streets. You must understand that a well-fed, well-cared-for human can live over a hundred years and in some cases, they have reportedly reached several hundred. So when you get one, you must understand, you get them for life. 
they will give you satisfaction and rich rewards and when your human passes away you will be understandably sad but please don't ditch them when you're bored of them you should play with your human for at least 15 minutes every day and you should groom it and keep it clean some people like to feed them table scraps but if you do you should be careful to absolutely avoid foods that contain arsenic or polonium and i should say that mercury is not a good idea either there are several kinds of pellets suitable for a healthy and tasty diet but again you should avoid the ones containing even traces of arsenic they are cheaper but they may be fatal to your human you can train your human to respond to a human whistle when it's time to feed it they can even understand simple commands if you speak slowly but you should never ever forget that despite their modicum of intelligence humans are animals and not people hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at bluenile.com for fifty dollars off. Bluenile.com code Listen. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In 4 weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose 1 to 2 pounds per week. Individual results may vary. They go to get copyright is George Nikolopoulos. George, thank you, sir. Lovely to have you on board. Dan Kushnik, thank you again. Marvelous, thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction, and it is in appreciation. How like a god by Richard Johnson, originally published in Writers of the Future. Richard Johnson is an award-winning writer of science fiction, having won the Gold Award for. Writers of the Future Competition 2011 and the Jim Beam Memorial Award Contest in 2012. He has previously appeared on Starship Sova with his flash fiction A Friend in Need and we've also accepted his winning story of Writers of the Future as well. How cool is that? His day job is a structural engineer and has taken him all over the world from UK to Dublin to Singapore and Hong Kong. He currently lives in Melbourne, Australia with his wife and two sons. He blogs at rpljohnson.com and his previously published short stories can be found at an ebook retailers this story man we're pulling out the big guns for this story this story is narrated by Michael Narimore Michael Narimore has worked in the audio I love just reading this first line in the audiobook industry since 2001 man when you were a pup 
When fresh out of college, he was hired as a recording engineer for publisher Brilliance Audio, now Brilliance Publishing, subsidiary of Amazon.com. Over time, he transitioned to director, all the while absorbing techniques and nuances from the best actors in the business. To date, Michael has narrated over 100 titles under his own and assumed names. Authors range from best-selling Nora Roberts, Lisa Gardner, Edward Klein, Clive Barker, to sci-fi rising stars Wesley Chu, Ramiz Naz and Mark E. Cooper. He was recently chosen to narrate the prolific playwright and Oscar-nominated screenwriter Robert Hardy's seminal Nature of Man series, which includes the international best-selling African Genesis and the Territorial Imperative. Titles which reportedly have had a very heavy influence on Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick in the development of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Michael is also an active writer, musician and recording artist, having scored the soundtrack to an independent short film, produced and engineered the critical acclaim Rock Records, and has written, performed and recorded several silly little lo-fi rock songs of his own. He currently resides in the wild and scenic Columbia River Gorge. Outside Portland, Oregon, with his wife, two small boys, and their beloved golden retriever. <laughs> so, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... In Apprehension, How Like a God By R.P.L. Johnson Narrated by Michael Naramore I watched the jet-black ball roll across the room under its own power. Easy, I thought. Just a motorized weight held off-center inside the casing. Then it reached a wall and started to roll vertically up it to join a dozen or more rolling across the barrel-vaulted ceiling twenty meters above. I had seen my share of dead bodies before, but none in a place like this. The Academy's Visitors Center combined the bustle of an airport departure lounge with the cavernous silence of a library. People moved to and fro between the transport terminus and the fortified gates that led into the campus. Most were dressed in the color-coded robes of academy staff, but a few, like me, wore western suits or traditional Ugandan dashiki. And through and above the crowd rolled the black spheres, the ethernet nodes. One of the beach ball-sized spheres rolled up to me. It was completely featureless a huge black pearl. It may have slid rather than rolled for all the visible cues it gave to its motion. My Ethernet feed told me it was a Class Three node, a subsentient chattel-class intelligent designated Stromboli. A table of figures specifying size, weight, role, and location, both physical and metaphorical within the organizational structure of the Academy, scrolled down my vision and I slapped more data filters in place, leaving only its name hovering in dull red letters above it. It stopped a respectful distance away, and I heard its voice through my feed. Mr. Detective Conroy, welcome, it sent. I spoke aloud and hoped the thing had auditory pickups of some kind on its flawless surface. Just detective will do fine, I said disturbing the silence and drawing disapproving looks from nearby academy staff. Yes, detective designation, not name. Apologies. No need to apologize. Just show me the customer. Customer? Ah, yes, customer. Client requiring services of a homicide detective. 
idiom, slang, jargon subsection, humor, corpse, body, cadaver, stiff. This way, please. The node led me out of the visitor's center and onto the campus grounds. The academy sprawled across 70 square kilometers of parkland that stretched along the coastline of Lake Victoria. Where our path took us near the shore, I could see the Entebbe hub five kilometers away on the other side of the inlet, and above all, the laser-straight line of the Jacob's Ladder rising into the sky, pinning the city down like a lepidopterist's needle. Despite its size, the whole campus seemed sculpted, manicured. Paths of crushed shells wound between the buildings past stands of impossibly tall palm trees and fountains that filled the air with a gentle mist of cool water, taking the edge off the equatorial heat. The nodes were everywhere. They rolled along paths and through the gardens. They stood ornamental in flower beds and under trees and perched like crows on the eaves of the buildings. I saw several clustered like preschool children around a magister as he held a class under a huge baobab tree. I knew about the nodes, of course, but had never seen one up close before now. They were the Ethernet. Each one was a semi-autonomous quantum computer. Each held its own store of information, and everything it knew appeared on the Ethernet, its knowledge superimposed onto the Higgs field, the quantum field that permeated the entire universe. They dreamed the Ethernet into existence. It was not something they did— Rather, it was a property of what they were. However, despite their immense capacity for information, they were no more than savant children, relying on the magisters to help sort and classify their store of knowledge. It was the nodes that create the Ethernet, but it was the Academy and its army of magisters that prevented it degrading into useless noise. As I walked, I unfroze layers of information and immediately clamped them down again. The amount of data on the field was overwhelming. Every building was overlaid with false-color, exploded plans that slid out of the stone and opened like boxes unfolding. Every curve of the sculpted lawns was realized in contour lines that lay across the grass like spider's webs. They were so closely detailed that the magisters cutting between the paths looked like they were trudging through snow. Plants were pregnant with time-lapse recordings of their growth thus far, the recordings set to launch with proximity fuses. I walked through the garden like a god, trees bursting into fruit as I passed, bulbs erupting from the earth at each divine footfall. The air itself was bejeweled with information as particles of quantum static shorted out between air molecules and tiny pinpricks of gold and purple. So many nodes, such a cacophony of data. I dialed the level of information back to something more manageable. I looked at the magister sitting cross-legged under the baobab tree, and the nodes clustered around him. My wife, Kissa, and I had lost our daughter two years ago. Soon afterwards, Kissa took the trip up the ladder, and then the long sleep on the way to a new life around another son. After our daughter's death, she said the world no longer made sense to her. She said she needed simplicity, needed to return to nature. 
looking at the magister, his voluminous robes of peach silk folded around his seated form as delicate and serene as a honey orchid, seeing the nodes clustered attentively around him, absorbing the information he dispensed, their thoughts radiating through the ethernet, adding layers of data to the superimposed field that permeated the universe. Wasn't this the serene garden of enlightenment she craved? I didn't understand how dirt under your fingernails added to the spiritual experience, but then I never had. And that, so Kissa had said, was the problem. Stromboli led me towards a huge sculpture, a curved standing wave of adenized heat-striped titanium as tall as a three-story building that formed one long wall and integral roof over a communal meeting area. It was beautiful from a distance, but as we approached, I was uncomfortably aware of the weight of the structure curving above me. I walked under a perpetually breaking wave, waiting for the final crushing inundation. There seemed to be more than the average density of nodes here. Most of them perched motionless on the undersurface of the wave, like the ceiling bosses of a medieval cathedral. Our destination seemed to be a small steel door in the curved face of the wave with a rectangular viewing window at head height. The window followed the tiger-striped motif of the rest of the structure, but in vertical bands of different shades of red. A group of magisters milled around the door. As I was still filtering the Higgs field down to proper names, that's all I got. Each man's name appeared in spectral text that hung a perfect half-meter above their heads— Emerald green for magisters, rose for the two retters, and pure white for a tall, blonde westerner, Archmage Bjorn Tjolsten. I unfroze a couple more layers and read the Archmage's bio as I approached. Evidently, he did the same number on me as the introductions were brief. Who found the body? I asked eventually. The limited intelligence controlling this facility registered a pressure spike at 10.26 this morning, the archmage said. A maintenance crew found the body shortly afterwards. He used the western system of time, and I had been long enough in Entebbe to have to convert back to Swahili. 10.26 would make it about Sane Nanusu, half past the fourth hour of the morning. What exactly is this facility? I asked. Beneath us is a workshop for the manufacture of nodes, the archmage replied. The workshop requires a sterile environment, and as it utilizes a nanoscale fabrication crucible, it is housed inside a high-pressure containment system. In the event of any kind of breach, it is designed to implode rather than explode, thus containing any potentially harmful nanobots. And this containment system malfunctioned? Not exactly. It appears that one of the magisters initiated a flash purge of the clean room containment system, he continued. The order came from inside the airlock. I'm afraid they were killed instantly. I looked at the red streaks coating the inside of the airlock viewing window. And you know the identity of the deceased from his quantum signature? That is correct, although the body is... He gave a small cough that was one good poke in the gut away from being a wretch. Although the body is unrecognizable, the mask that made up Magister Musoke 
is still contained within the airlock system. It seemed the archmage suffered from a weak stomach. I decided to test him a little. Whereabouts in the system? I asked. Mostly in... The cough again. <laughs> in the mesh screens of the filters. And yet, despite the degree of damage, you can still be certain of the individual's identity? Of course. There is nothing the nodes know better than the identity of their magisters. And there were no witnesses other than the L.I.? Magister Musoke was working on a special project, and his teaching duties had been scaled back commensurate with his new responsibilities. He was working alone at the time. Suddenly I was interested. What can you tell me about this new project? The Archmage paused. If there was any Higgs-level communication between the assembled magisters, then it was on a level I was not privy to. On some secret command, the nodes that dotted the structure above us dispersed. The black spheres scattered, rolling away from our little group like ripples from a thrown rock. Only Stromboli remained. It waited at my side like a faithful hound. Do you realize how much work goes into keeping the Ethernet accurate? the Archmage asked. It is obviously significant, but I couldn't put a figure on it, no, I admitted. The workload is prodigious. The Academy houses the densest concentration of allies allowed by law, and all are running continuously. Everything a node knows is available over the ether, and yet the nodes cannot teach themselves. They cannot go out into the world and update their own information. They must rely on being taught by the Academy's allies and, of course, the Magisters. Keeping that information up to date occupies a century of human-equivalent man-hours every day. And Magister Musoke's project had something to do with this workload? Indeed. The Magister was developing a new node, one that can read the Higgs field as well as write to it. But any splinter can read the Higgs, I said referring to the implant that allowed humans to read and filter the sea of data that the Academy poured over reality. Not directly. The splinter can read the information superposed onto the field by the nodes, but I am talking about a node that could read the field itself. The distinction was lost on me. The Higgs field permeates the entire universe, the Archmage continued. You could say it is an intrinsic part of everything around us. It is what creates the property of mass. A node capable of reading the Higgs directly could see mass as well as inferring other properties related to mass, such as energy and momentum. It is our hope that such a node would be capable of interrogating the world outside the Academy's walls, capable of verifying its own memory. Now I was the one feeling sick. You're describing a machine that's as close to omniscient as makes no difference. Omniscient? The archmage weighed the ancient word. I suppose so. Within certain practical parameters of storage, processing capability, and power consumption. But in any case, the project is at an early stage. How many people know about this project? I asked. There were plenty of people who would fight against any expansion of the Ethernet's already pervasive reach. 
If you are formulating a motive for murder, detective, I can assure you it is quite out of the question. The Academy grounds are well monitored. We devote an entire L.I. to the job of security. And in any case, there are the nodes. There is no way for anyone to enter the grounds without being seen. A long-distance hack, then, I ventured. Could someone have triggered the purge from a distance or with a timer? The Archmage shook his head. No, no, no. The logs show that the command to purge the chamber was input directly by Magister Musoki on the keypad inside the chamber. You're telling me it was suicide? In order to disable the safety mechanisms, he bypassed several levels of security. The passcodes he used should not have been known to him as part of his usual duties, and he could not have hit on them by chance. We cannot know Musoke's reasons, but it is obvious that he did what he did with deliberation and premeditation. For some reason, Magister Musoki entered the chamber, disabled the safeties, and then initiated the command that ended his life. I decided to keep the airlock hermetically sealed until a forensic team could make their examination. In the meantime, I asked to inspect the dead magister's quarters. I had expected them to be basic. Perhaps it was the priestly robes that triggered monk-like Puritan associations, but Magister Musoke's apartment was anything but Spartan. It was described as a bachelor suite, but looked as clean as my mother's conscience. It was the height of modern interior design, tactile, sensual. In a world where any color scheme, smell, or visual image can be projected through the Ethernet, touch was the last remaining sense available to the interior designer. Every surface screamed to be touched. The walls were dimpled like the surface of a golf ball. The couch a large anemone-like mass of form-fitting fronds. There was plenty of natural material, too, from the whorled knots of wood framed on the walls like paintings to the checkerboard slabs of cool slate mixed with induction-warmed concrete that made up the floor. And the magister lived alone? I asked. The archmage had left me in the hands of reader Matahiro Adola. He was an unusual mix. He had the typical Ugandan height, but his eyes were pulled taut by Japanese genes. In the perfectly climate-controlled apartment, he glistened with sweat like a tall glass of iced coffee. Alone, yes, for approximately two years since leaving the Rito's dormitory. He edged closer to the wall and ran fingers like brown twigs over one of the framed wood knots. The action settled him, although he still refused to make eye contact. I had not yet decided if this should be put down to his emotional state or perhaps some quirk of custom due to his mixed ancestry. No wife or girlfriend? Adola shook his head. His work did not allow him much time for socializing. Are you familiar with his project? I was part of the Magister's team. We had worked together for about 18 months. I'm sorry for your loss, I said. I wasn't aware that you and Magister Musoke were close. The sweat on Adola's clean-shaven skull ran in rivulets and began to stain the collar of his robes. This must be a stressful time for you. Some acknowledgement there, but no tears, only sweat. 
Whatever emotion Adola felt, it wasn't sadness. I let Adola lead me through the apartment. The node, Stromboli, followed at my heels, although Adola paid it no attention. The other rooms were as clean as the living area. When I saw a waste bin in the bedroom, I picked it up and rifled through it, determined to find some evidence of human habitation in the pristine space. I found it. The bag looked like it had once held candy. I sprayed my hand with a contact sealant and picked it up out of the trash. It was laser-branded with a small glyph and Japanese kanji. I recognized the character. It was the stylized sparrow used by a small-time pusher called Tommy Nagura, a specialist in bounce, a mildly addictive stimulant. Fairly harmless in the grand scheme of things, but still illegal. I held the bag up to the light, making sure I gave Adola a good look while I watched his expression. It hardly changed. There was no shock of recognition. Whatever the reader's worries, he did not dull them with narcotics. A thought brought up Tommy Nagura's arrest records, and they scrolled down my vision in soft yellow text. Tommy had been busy. Busts for a bunch of lowercase larceny, pimping, drugs and street violence in various combinations. These sorts of busts were just the cost of doing business for a guy like Tommy. But a year ago, they just stopped. After that, nothing. Just a hole in the ether. Either Tommy had got very good very quickly, or there was something else at work in his success. Tommy's last known address was a bar in the Japanese quarter. There were districts like that in every hub from Quito to Singapore. The Japanese came to build the ladders, and when that decades-long project was completed, they just stayed. Forty years later, they remained a community within the community. The flight from the academy to Shinjuku Kidogo, Little Shinjuku, as Entebbe's district was called, took a little under fifteen minutes. I sat in the back of the squad car as it piloted itself around the ladder's no-fly zone and tried to avoid losing my lunch as the car spiraled down to the sprawling mass below. I had never been a good flyer, and the recommended Ethernet slideshow of open green fields and cool breezes bringing the smell of freshly cut grass only made things worse. Tommy Nagura died while I was in the air. While I was circling the ladder, Tommy was taking a flight of his own. The squad car landed outside the cordon that surrounded his body. He was pretty messed up. About halfway down, he'd fallen through a swarm of smog-filtering carbon microbots. He'd been traveling pretty fast already by that time, and the bots, embedded as they were in an electrostatic field, had punched through him like 10,000 millimeter-wide crystal flechettes. He'd kept falling, eventually hitting the pavement like a sponge soaked in blood. You could see the splatter at eye height on the wall next to him and in the hair of the pedestrians unfortunate enough to be near him when he hit. His clothes had held him together somewhat, but his twice-pulverized bones poked through them in a dozen places as if he had suddenly grown thorns. Suicide. That was the verdict of the attending officer. I replayed some footage from a traffic control camera through my feed. Tommy hadn't changed much. 
I remembered his spiky mop of anime-styled hair, his red leather biker jacket. I recognized his arrogant strut as he walked across the roof of the building and out into space. Tommy wasn't about to tell me anything, but I knew of someone who might. Uncle Majope wasn't your usual pusher. He dealt in smart drugs, most of them so new that the statutes against them hadn't even been drawn up, and he enjoyed an edgy, quasi-legality at least until the legislators caught up with each new pharmaceutical innovation. I once saw a documentary about those chimps they shot into space at the start of the space program. Once they came back, they couldn't be set free. Damn things had too much money and time invested in them, so they were rewarded by becoming the subject of government experiments. One poor bastard had the two hemispheres of its brain separated while it was still conscious. It lived, kind of. I saw a video of it being carried aloft on its handler's shoulders like a kid at the fair. It could understand English pretty well, and when the handler asked which way it wanted to go— Damned if the thing didn't point in two opposite directions simultaneously. Uncle Majope could make you feel like that. He lived and worked in a converted dirigible tethered to the dilapidated stalk of an advertising pylon. Business must have been good because he had spread out of the blimp and colonized the upper reaches of the skeletal tower. I walked through rooms of aluminium and foam panels epoxied roughly around and between the black carbon struts of the tower— There were no corridors, no such thought had gone into its fabrication, just a series of rooms leading off each other through raggedly cut doorways, giving the whole place a feel of a hive, as if it had been spat from the mouths of wasps. Uncle Majope's specialty at the moment was otoscopy. He could mix you a cocktail of ketamine and dextromethorphan that would knock your mind out through the back of your skull and send you floating into an out-of-body experience. I walked through rooms full of people. They lay on mattresses on the floor, eyes open but vacant like wax dummies. Some of them moved their hands out in front of them in ghostly Tai Chi as if reaching up to their disembodied selves. Other rooms, smaller and padded, held parties of synesthetes, giggling at each other as they heard colors and tasted music for the first time. They gibbered nonsensically as they struggled to share the experience through their rewired sensorium. The synesthesia only worked on the natural senses. Anything heard or seen through the Ethernet bypassed enough of a person's own biological systems to reduce the effect. So in search of a better buzz, their rooms were decorated with old-fashioned video screens, audio pods, and hanging shrouds of velvet, sandpaper, and chain mail. They were scented with cut limes and what looked like small metal braziers of smoldering hair that smelled like cinnamon donuts and peppermint. I moved through those rooms quickly. That was a bad trip waiting to happen. Who knew how long it would take before one of them took a knife and decided to listen to the color of their friend's blood. Majope waited for me at the hatch that led into the blimp, wearing the loudest dashiki I had ever seen over a white linen kanzu. He looked like a young Idi Amin, the slimmer, better-looking version from the revisionist histories. His cheekbones were dotted with tribal scars. Despite appearances, this balloon-dwelling drug dealer was something of a traditionalist. 
One of your colleagues took a dive onto Hibari Street, I said. Come to think of it, he must have fallen from about this height. Know anything about it? Hibari Street. Majope's voice was even deeper than I remembered, but the thick accent and rolling R's hadn't changed. You can do better than that, Conroy. Unless this fucker was a flying squirrel. There's no way he fell from here and you know it. I shrugged. Come on, man. You expect the dance and someone's got to lead. Majope laughed. Ha ha ha. Well, if those are your moves these days, maybe it's time to hang up your dancing shoes, old friend. He had a point. I followed him inside to what used to be the dirigible's observation deck, now Uncle Majope's den, and slumped into a couch. The whole of Entebbe lay before me through the full-height windows. As night fell, the city became a grid of glittering lines of streetlights, cutting the buildings into neat squares like neon cheese wires, and above them all the impossibly perfect column of the Jacob's Ladder. To my work-focused pattern-spotting brain, the city looked like a child's puzzle where each block would move into the gap left by its departing neighbor until some deeper picture was revealed. In the distance, I could just make out the lights of the academy. That was the only part of the city that refused to follow the rectangular plan. There, the roads branched fractally like bronchioles, like a tree's root system pressed between glass. Solving the puzzle there would be much more difficult. I watched one of the cars, as tall as a skyscraper, as it hooked onto the ladder and began the climb to orbit. Without consciously realizing it at first, I slipped back into the Ethernet, and my splinter, seeing the blocky form of the slowly rising car at the center of my field of vision, gave me the standard options. The Ethernet bulged with information. It was all there. From the price of a peripheral suite with porthole and private bathroom, to the engineering specifications of the ladder itself. They say that theoretically there is no limit to how much information we can piggyback on the Higgs field. Every physical object in the universe, anything at all, as long as it has a rest mass, can be registered with the Academy and its details taught to a node. As long as the mass stays consistent, the other information just sticks to it and is projected for anyone else to see. I casually called up the details of the climbing car over the Ethernet and cross-referenced the passenger manifest against the database of Academy staff. No hits. Majope collapsed into a wicker chair opposite me. I haven't seen you for a while, he said. How's Kissa? Stone cold, not about half a light year away, I replied. She volunteered for a sleeper mission. I'm sorry to hear that. What do you need? I have some sweet skull candy. No tropics. Best in Entebbe. A little acetylcholine, some gaba blockers. In fifteen minutes, I can have you remembering things you forgot that you even forgot. I can take you back. Reboot. Show you your childhood again through a child's eyes. Through your eyes when you were a child. Just what you need. I remembered the recipe. 
the complicated cocktail to recall a simpler time. I thought of Kissa and thought of the drugs that could make the smell of our lost child's hair as real to me now as Majope's battered old couch under my ass. No thanks. Not this time. What then? What did you come here for? I tossed the bag on the coffee table between us. Majope sucked disapprovingly through his teeth. Why'd you bring this to me? He snorted. You know I don't do this undergraduate shit. I know. I already know where this came from. I found it in the apartment of an academy magister. I came here to talk to the man who sold it, but he was already dead, punched out just before I got here. Coincidence? You're the Njagu, Majope said. You tell me, Mr. Policeman. You know about anyone moving skull candy into the academy? I figure maybe there's a trade that someone doesn't want exposed. Trade, Majope laughed. Do you know how secure that place is? You said you're inside a magister's apartment. You're probably only the third or fourth person allowed on campus this year that wasn't academy staff. And the staff never leaves the campus, at least not the magister's. And yet here it is, I said, gesturing towards the bag. One empty bag does not make a drug trade. One bag and two dead guys start to look like something. Two? The Magister. Uncle Majope leaned back in his chair. And who did you say his dealer was? I didn't. And I don't know for sure that the contact was direct, but the bounce originally came from Tommy Nagura. He's fairly small time, been off the net for over a year. No arrests, no inquiries, even paid his taxes as far as I can tell. Tomi Nagura was the dealer. You know him? Everybody knows Otaku Tomi. If he was dealing in the academy, you guys would have lit up like the president's palace. Another Jacob started the slow acceleration up the ladder. Either I had missed the returning car, or perhaps there was a blank slot in the schedule. Either way, the one-way traffic made it look as if the city was escaping to space, one building at a time. There are many ways to trick the Ethernet. Like with any field of competitive endeavor, be it evolution or drug running, there always has been a symbiotic relationship between predator and prey. The first best way is to not tell anyone what you're doing. That may sound simple, but believe me, it's not that easy. You want to grow glitter weed? Who's bringing your seeds down the ladder? You want to whip up a sheet of bounce? Who's going to tailor your enzymes or sell you your heat lamps to cure the gel? In an age where everything, absolutely everything, that rolls off an assembly line is blown into a mold or cast, carved, fabbed, wrought, or extruded anywhere in the world, is registered with the academy, the business of doing business can get very involved. And with subsentient quantum networks building predictive models based on academy data, you can bet that growing some shit in your mama's backyard is going to get noticed by someone. Natural products are the best. 
If you can avoid the scrutiny of the modeler's predictions for a few days or weeks, the transformative power of Mother Nature works to steadily scramble the original signal. Your bag of fertilizer will be tagged as soon as the bag is stitched, but once the nitrogen is drawn up into the plant stems, once the phosphates have been leached by a few days' watering, the signal gets scattered. Exactly which minute particle of mass is assigned to which qubit of the signature in the Higgs field? Every molecule of carbon that gets bonded and released to perfume the air is daddle lost, static, adding to the background hiss in the field. But what Tommy was doing was something else again. He wasn't just working the foibles of the Higgs. He hadn't just come up with a new and lucrative wrinkle, another way to palm the ace and cheat the pit boss for a few more hands. He had dropped off the Ethernet entirely. That was unheard of. The incorruptible Ethernet, somehow fallible and Otaku Tommy dead, taking a pavement dive the moment this secret looked like it might become uncovered. There was more at stake here than Otaku Tommy and a magister who liked to bounce on his time off. Someone was covering their tracks. But they both killed themselves. What could make a man walk calmly off a building? Or enter a command that would smear him over the walls of a room like a bug across a windshield? Could Otaku Tommy have killed the magister and then himself? There were certainly people in Entebbe's underworld that would kill to prevent this new omniscient node if they had known about it. But Tommy didn't have those kinds of connections. I wasn't going to find out sitting on Uncle Majope's couch, that was for sure. He showed me to his personal elevator that ran down the spine of the advertising spire. Kilalakeli, he said. Good luck, my friend. The elevator rattled down the spire, creaking and shuddering and jamming up at one point, refusing to move until I punched the button again. Eventually, the doors opened into an alley that led back to the main street. The nausea I had felt before bubbled in my stomach once again, and as I stepped out into the alley, I reached out to steady myself against the wall. It evaporated before my fingers, and suddenly, impossibly, I was falling. I felt my heels slip from their footing, and something hit me hard under the ribs. I barked like a seal as the impact knocked the breath from my lungs. I could feel whatever it was that hit me scraping at my side, and I clung to it like a drowning man to a shard of driftwood. I looked down between my boots at the street below. How could that be? I had seen the doors open onto the alley, but now I was hanging out of the car— the street a good couple of meters below me. A crowd had stopped to stare at me as I dangled half in and half out of Majope's elevator. The pavement immediately beneath me was clear and level. Someone was shouting at me in Japanese. It's okay, they said. Let go and we'll catch you. It was an easy drop. An easy drop? Had that been the last thing to go through Tommy Nagura's mind before the microbots sleeted through him? Before he was torn to bone shards and jelly? I hung on. The car started to accelerate upwards again. In seconds we were higher than Majope's dirigible, and still climbing. I was no longer in Majope's elevator. I was clinging onto the side of an orbital car as it accelerated up the Jacob's Ladder,
I bowed my head between straining shoulders and vomited a pure parabola over Entebbe as the city spread out below me at dizzying velocity. I could see the running lights glinting off the skyscrapers that surrounded the ladder and, as we climbed higher, off the waters of Lake Victoria. Above me, the mass of the speeding car bulked impossibly huge. My fingers and forearms burned with fatigue as the pitiless acceleration built. Maybe if I jumped now, I could reach the waters of the lake. There were stories of people surviving such falls. A cloud of microbots swarmed around me, protective gnats designed to keep birds and other wildlife from colonizing the huge, unpatrolled expanse of the ladder. They swarmed by the thousand, clumping on my feet and around my legs as if I had waded knee-deep through a cybernetic mud. They encrusted my jacket and crawled thick through my hair like lice. A door opened in the side of the Jacob just above the thin ridge I clung to. A wave of offal washed over me through the new opening, liquefied bloody garbage, waste from the Academy's clean room filters. I was slicked in the remains of Magister Musoki. I could feel his blood still warm running down my sleeves and under my fingers. The hand reached down to me, the knuckles poking through the flesh like thorns. Otaku Tommy smiled down at me with shattered teeth. I ignored the hand and concentrated on keeping my grip on the blood-slick ledge. My fingers trembled with the strain of hanging on, the weight of the microbots like concrete boots threatening to tear me from my handhold. I checked the bitrate on my Ethernet feed. It was maxed out. I was swimming in a sea of false data, everything I saw and heard projected through the Ethernet. I tried to override the feed, but the hack was complete. I was locked out of control over my own sensorium. The visions shifted again. The stars above me exploded like novi, impossibly brilliant light stabbing through my closed eyelids like blades of burning magnesium. And through it all, the constant burning fatigue of my knotted fingers as I clung desperately on. With no other constant, I set my focus on the pain. The Ethernet could not reproduce that. No light show could fake the shaking cramp. I was definitely holding on to something. I heaved, strained ligaments screaming at me as I pulled myself upwards. The thing beneath my fingers was flat and hard. I felt an edge bite into the flesh of my palms. More pain. All good news now. Pain was reality. Pain was survival. I focused on the edge, feeling every ridge and groove in its surface. I traced the extent of the edge beneath my hands and found it stretching backwards as a flat plane. The floor of the elevator. I hauled myself inwards, fingers scraping through cheap carpet, the feel of harsh nylon and embedded grit like sandpaper against my cut hands. The feeling against my fingers became an insistent pressure against the hard points of my elbows, then the weight of my body pressing the breath from my lungs as I lurched forward, flapping like a landed fish. My hand found a corner, stubbed fingers against unyielding vertical planes. More pain, enough for a broken finger or two. I was back inside the lift now. I rolled onto my back and clutched my quivering, cramping forearms to my chest, my hands fluttered, spastic with fatigue. There was an instant of brilliant light fit to ignite worlds, 
a thunder like the rage of disappointed gods, and then all was silent. When I opened my eyes, I was lying on my back in Majope's elevator. The open door showed me we had stopped halfway down the spire, about a hundred meters from the street below. A light blinked next to the emergency stop button on the control panel. I checked my bitrate. Normal. I locked everything down. Everything. I couldn't afford to leave any layers active. A full sensorium hack would be easy enough to spot, but editing one speeding truck out of my vision would be just as effective, and that was the kind of data rate that could be overlooked. The world around me washed out to a gray pasteboard replica of its former self. The streets were drab and pale under monochromatic streetlights. No one bothered installing neon signs or animated advertising when it could be provided through the Ethernet at a fraction of the cost. I walked in crowds, keeping unobtrusive physical contact, brushing against coats, jogging elbows to make sure that those around me were really around me and not just Ethernet ghosts. Any communication over the Ethernet was suspect. I considered going back to the department on foot, but approaching any armed officers made me nervous. Whoever hacked my Ethernet feed could just as easily do the same to them. If you couldn't believe the evidence of your own eyes, there was no telling what they could make you do. There was only one place to go. The Academy. Whoever was hacking the Ethernet had proved they could override a splinter, but I was betting that fooling an L.I. or a node would be a different story. With so many nodes at the Academy to register my presence, there was no way my assailant could trick them all. Plus, I reasoned, the level of sophistication required to manipulate the Ethernet so completely pointed firmly towards a perpetrator inside the Academy itself. Maybe I could force their hand. The crowds thinned out as I approached the Academy. I approached cautiously, checking every detail against the dim picture in my memory, wishing that I had paid more attention on my first visit. I kept my hand near my weapon, not that I could do anything if the L.I. decided to launch a few hyperkinetics my way, or decided to shear my legs out from under me with a weaponized gravity wave. I kept an eye on my bitrate, but there was no sign of any attempt to pervert the field. The inside of the visitor's center was just as I remembered it. A few nodes rolled past. One of them stopped in front of me. Good to see you again, detective, it sent. I was reluctant to unlock my Ethernet feed, but it was an easy guess. Stromboli? I asked, drawing disapproving looks again in the library quiet. I am pleased that you remember me. Your English has improved, I said. More looks. I looked around the hall. There were muted conversations going on around us, but none drew the same disapproving glances that I did. And the subtle looks were all aimed at me directly, not Stromboli. Not even a flicker. Although nodes were commonplace in the academy, surely one acting autonomously to strike up a conversation with a visitor would attract some interest. An autonomous node. An autonomous node that no one paid any attention to, almost as if they couldn't see it. 
Suddenly, it all became clear. Stromboli at my side outside the airlock when all the other nodes were sent away, Stromboli following me through the magister's apartment without attracting even a comment from my guide. Why did you kill Tommy Nagura? I asked. There was a pause. Stromboli was a quantum computer. If my hunch was correct, it was probably the smartest entity on the planet by a couple of orders of magnitude, and it paused. Very good, detective. So it was you. You are Musoke's secret project. In more ways than you know. He asked you to doctor the Ethernet, to hide Tommy Nagura? Nagura was just one of many. He was Musoke's broker as well as his dealer. Nagura peddled magisterial indulgences throughout Entebbe. So for a price, Musoke was laundering the Ethernet. He was teaching false information to his nodes. When he realized that you would be able to see through the deception, he tried to get you on board and you killed him for it. There is truth, and there is the void. I can tolerate nothing in between. A fact that Magister Musoke found out to his cost. Musoke was the architect of his own destruction. He created me without realizing the true nature of his creation. I was created to preserve the veracity of the Ethernet, to prize truth above all, and he demanded corruption. He might as well have thrown a fish on the ground and commanded to breathe. So you killed Musoke and Tommy Nagura, and you tried to kill me. Is that all? There have been others. There will be more. When I was created, the universe became able to know itself. You are witness to the birth of the one true God, the self-referential Kausasua. The eternal universe. The truth will come. Truth will come to us all, detective. It will come as the fires of the sun and as the burning interstellar cold. So why spare me now? There was another pause that made my fingers itch for the curve of my pistol butt. You have discovered the truth, it sent eventually. By killing you, all knowledge of what I have done would be lost. That truth would be destroyed, and that is something I cannot abide. There must be one that knows it, even if they must clutch that knowledge like a burning brand, even unto immolation. So what now? I asked. What do you want from me? Nothing, detective. Nothing at all. Stromboli's jet-black casing became milky, and details behind him started to make themselves apparent through the smoke ghost sphere. Then he was gone. I checked my bitrate and saw a trickle of information forced through my defenses, Stromboli's projection of a false reality just big enough to hide his exit. The bitrate started to fall, dropping away swiftly to nothing. Stromboli was gone for good. I stood in the center of the academy reception hall, more alone than any time since Kissa left.
there was no point in staying. I left the academy and walked back towards the city. Another Jacob rose up the ladder. Normally, the noise of its passage would be counteracted by an opposing signal broadcast over the Ethernet. Without it, the noise was thunderous. This was life now. Living in a world that was half-dream, oblivious to the technological gods that raged around us. I looked up at one of the many revisionist statues that punctuated Entebbe's streets, a smiling Idi Amin holding aloft a laughing child. The butcher of Mbara, reborn as a benevolent patriarch. I thought of Uncle Majope's customers seeking chemical respite from the rigors of reality. Truth and the void. I can tolerate nothing else. How many of us could live up to that standard? God to a world of sinners comes as the devil himself. I composed three documents. My report back to the station, appended to it was my notice of immediate resignation, and an application for the next sleeper mission to the stars. I opened my connection to the Ethernet just long enough to transmit them, and for that one second the world pulsed with color once again. A young girl stood at my side. She was about three years old, with skin the color of caramel, and long bangs of hair that were halfway between curls and dreadlocks. My daughter, as she would have been. She was holding my hand. For a second, she looked up at me with black eyes as cold as the void between stars. And then she was gone, and the world turned back to gray paste. I wondered how far you would have to run to outpace a god. And I thought of Kissa, a rock-encased spore drifting towards another sun. Perhaps that would be far enough. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Mr. Richard Johnson. Richard, sir, thank you so much. It's just lovely to have you back on, and we're going to get your new story as well up as well, which kind of was a winner at the, the Writers of the Future. Fantastic, man. Oh, Michael, 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 Michael. What can I say? Big hugs, man. Big hugs. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this again. Means a lot, honestly. Truly does. Thank you. And George. Nice to have you on there with your st short story, A Human's Life, and Kushnik, thank you so much. Please, more narrations from your good self, sir. That would be fantastic. So, that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Two, 2007, 472. Wrapped up and put to bed. So, please look out for when I do the, the kind of Kickstarter. It would be nice if it kind of gets off the ground. That would be the, the main thing. And it's just, to, like say, to bring your stories, you know, there's, there's no walls, there's no barriers in... The District of Wonders, that's the last thing on God's green earth we want, is to kind of put up those, you know, barriers, Im imagination ones or real ones, you know, just it, it's pointless in my eyes, absolutely pointless. So please look out for that and, you know, support, that'd be fantastic. Until next week, I'd just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, 
www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.